Hello, agents. This is Eddie McClintock. I played Special Agent Pete Latimer on Warehouse 13, and you are listening to Podcast 13. <laughs> Thank you. This week's episode is Season 1, Episode 6, titled Burnout. It is written by Matthew Fetterman and Steven Skaya. Your summary for the week is, Pete and Micah investigate a mysterious series of deaths by burning. Claudia and Artie argue about bringing new technology into the warehouse. Pete and Micah encounter long-lost warehouse agents, alive and dead. Ooh, thank you. I have a super fun Writer's Appreciation Corner this week, and I'm actually really excited about. So, this week's episode, as I said, is written by Matthew Fetterman and Steven Skaya. They, (laughs) I checked their history, it's not just this episode, they are what's known as a writing team, which I'm so (gasps) glad I get to cover because we don't really, writing teams are pretty rare because a team is considered two writers, you don't go more than two writers, because each of them gets paid a full salary, but for the job of what is otherwise one person. So instead of filling two spots uh, in a writer's room, it just fills one spot because every episode they write is going to be written together, which is really cool. And it's a sign that the showrunner and the executive producers really believe in you and your skill because (laughs) mathematically for them, accounting-wise, it just, it looks like they're paying double the salary to one person. So they have to really, really want you on the team in order to invest in your team. Well, dare I say the investment paid off because this is a really beautiful episode in terms of writing especially. Yeah, it's such a beautiful episode. And just some background they did. Jericho, Limitless, Human Target, they go back a while. Um, they did Judging Amy. They, they go back. But... It is a really good investment, and I'm also really glad that we get to look into a writing team after we had some issues with the last episode that had a lot of hands on it. When you're looking at a TV episode, you might notice that previous episodes said something like, this is written by Jane Espenson and Dee Brent Moat, or this is written by Jack Kenny and someone else, and it spells out and writing teams and any sort of producing team legally i believe have an ampersand oh my gosh i love you for knowing that (laughs) also i love ampersands and the word ampersand which comes from a mishearing of ampersand anyway i love you for sharing all of that and i agree (laughs) so yeah i think this is really cool because what we've seen so far on co-written episodes is work where one voice seems to be struggling to be dominant or people are trying to shove disparate things together. Whereas a writing team, they work really well together and they're built for this. And hang on, there are other famous teams. Let me just look them up real quick because I know that there's one that works on a lot of Joss Whedon works. Yes, okay. So the writing team on Angel, The Shield, Women's Murder Club, Dollhouse, Lie to Me, and The Secret Circle... Uh, are a duo known as Elizabeth Craft and Sarah Fain. They're best friends and they're a writing team and they do everything together, um, writing-wise, I mean. And so it's not unheard of that there's a writing team, 
but it is pretty rare and really special. Thank you for that info about the writers team and it also just makes me think of our future goals because we could definitely be a writing team and we kind of are a podcasting team. I was thinking the same thing because of course I was thinking the same thing because we always think the same thing. Because we're basically two people who do the same job and get paid the same as one person, which is zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Support us on Patreon. Yes. Sorry. So, um, back to the show. Let's go ahead and jump into a beat by beat. Micah and Pete are on their way to investigate an artifact. We jump right in in this episode so we get the dialogue exposition that there is a gas explosion and we also get the chiron and the sort of establishing shot that they are in st louis so they're walking down the street and talking as they approach the scene and there's a really earnest conversation happening between micah and pete because micah looks a little disheveled uh, and she says she really badly needs a vacation and the way she describes it is to some place outside of Podunk, South Dakota. And I thought this was so smart because we talked about in our most recently aired episode, which was 103, how isolating it would be to move from, you know, a big metropolis like DC to the middle of nowhere. Um, so she she needs to get away. And it also calls back to what Lena said, where when we very first met Micah, Pete said she hates traveling. And Lena says she loves traveling, it's just the places. So Micah needs a vacation to, you know, someplace relaxing, someplace she likes. Someplace with something happening. Someplace where she can go see a show. Like, she needs something. Um, and Pete agrees quippily by saying, oh yeah, you have bags under your eyes. And here's what really sticks out to me about this is that he always quips with her, but whether it was the makeup team or the lighting team, I don't know, she does look like she's got bags under her eyes. Yeah. And I think it was so brilliantly done because what you see in this interaction is that she gives Pete like a really heartbroken look, you know? Yeah, she's not mad at him. She's not even offended. She's just like, oh, God, really? She, it, it, and he wasn't saying it to necessarily be quippy or be funny. He was just like, yeah, no, I get it. I see it, which is sort of their brother-sister dynamic. But, like, he wasn't registering that maybe that's not what she needed. Or maybe it was even what she needed, but it still didn't have a good effect. Like, she needed the validation, but the validation also sucks. And that's what I was thinking is that, they do their normal brother-sisterly interaction, their sibling interaction. Um, so she smacks him on the shoulder and he says, ow. But we just can see in Joanne Kelly's acting in those small expressions and the sort of wateriness of her eyes that she is really actually upset. And it's not, it's not like, you know, you can quip with your uh, sibling or a close friend that, oh, you, you look ridiculous or whatever. But this is not that right now. Yeah. And also something that I was thinking about now, having done the Eddie McClintock interview, um, is this one did seem more X-Files. This seemed more along the lines of like the original vibe that they were going for. 
But it was funny because in order to get that mood, they had to like literally drain energy from the main character. Like they had to make Micah. So it's like, it's not sustainable. We don't want Micah to feel like this every episode. And I think they have to do it too because the artifact this week drains the energy from Pete. So to have them with their same dynamic, um, you know, we tone them both down to this later in the episode, desperation and exhaustion. Um, And it works really well. So as they walk into this location that they're investigating, uh, Pete possibly just wanting to say something because he's a talkative guy and Micah shut him down, tells a random construction worker that that's a big ass generator. And it seems like to me as a writer that that is clearly a dialogue clue put in by a writer, but I don't think it's bad. I think it's just necessary. I think it was totally necessary. And I think that the writers and the set deck team, the art department, everyone involved with the visuals of the scene really made it work because I believe the writers needed to put that clue in, but there was also so much happening visually that we as an audience heard it but didn't register it necessarily as something that was super important because we were like, okay, wait, we weren't given enough information to know exactly what we were supposed to be looking for yet. So we walk in, there are six bodies, we know that something has happened, and we don't know which body we're supposed to look at. Is it the one being taken out on the gurney? There's some generators over there. Maybe we should be suspicious of the cops that are walking around. Fine, we just don't know. So that bit of information is just lost amongst all the other information that's happening. Uh, Micah initially asks to see one of the bodies that they're wheeling out, and the paramedic unzips the bag. We know that she has seen terrible things in her life. She's seen her partner killed in front of her. She saw Professor Marzato's corpse, too. Um, But she's clearly disturbed by what she sees when they unzip the bag. I would say even more than normal. Yeah, I mean, and Pete tries to make a joke, but it's real dark. Like, he goes, oh, KFC, extra crispy. He's deflecting, I think. Yeah, like, it didn't bother me that he said it. He was, like, clearly trying, and I, I felt like Micah appreciated it, but, like, neither of them had the energy to actually smile or laugh at that joke. And also, I think it's especially rough because it happened in a police station. Mm-hmm. We know later that they're all gang members who are affected which doesn't make it better but I do think that when you are a law enforcement officer there's something especially difficult about seeing another law enforcement officer taken down especially in a brutal fashion you know well right because it reminds you of the danger of your job which ostensibly you love but when you're reminded that every day you could be the next body it's hard yeah and they don't know if it's one or the other yet so yes um So as they enter the scene, there's a very angry looking man. His name is Captain Powell. Interestingly, Pete calls him general, but I think that's like a joking, what, like a governor sort of thing. He's like, hey, general. I like that your immediate response to it was to make the British equivalent. That's hilarious. (laughs) So he describes what occurred as an accident. Uh, Pete and Micah have more questions, but... This guy, Powell, doesn't seem to have the time of day. I described him as pissy. Yeah. And 
this is upsetting to me because he's so unhelpful and maybe I guess it's his own way of deflecting. If these are your colleagues, I expect you to be really saddened and really hurt. And instead, he's like, you wouldn't believe the amount of paperwork I've got. And if we just take that line at face value, it's upsetting that he's mainly concerned about paperwork. But if we think, okay, he's dealing with something terrible by being in denial, then maybe that uh, explains it better. I had a different reading altogether. I think he's sort of seeing it as his space and like it just happened. The bodies haven't even been cleared yet. And then these people are coming in to what? Outrank him, question his authority, make it seem like it's his fault. Like, I don't think it's unusual for him to not want to engage. It's like, oh, are you going to come question me about every little thing? I haven't even had time to assess the scene. Are you just looking to assign blame because this is a bad thing that has happened? Because I'm not going to stick around and wait for you to point the finger at me. True. And he does kind of give them permission to, to go look. He just doesn't have the time to deal with them. And they, Pete and Micah, say that they're going to go speak to the engineer. I think this is the point where Pete offers Micah his arm? Yes! Why yeah. does this happen? She was like, let's go. And she sort of made like a, a small attempt at a gesture. And he was like, ah? And she's like, no, no of course, of course that's not going to happen. But he like puts his arm out just in case. But man, it's so funny when you're, you know, your goofy Pete sort of sense of humor friend does that. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it, it just gave me a little laugh. Again, Pete trying to lighten the mood, even though you know, is it the most sensitive thing? No, but people deal with immense trauma in their own way, and that's what he's doing. Um, and I also think it was actually really sensitive because it was nice and light and goofy, but also Micah's really tired, and if she maybe wants, you know, what she saw clearly affected her. She's already not feeling her full strength. If she's like, wants a friend to lean on, he's made himself kind of goofy, and she can just go with the bit and not lose face. Yeah, so if she was, you know, when you see something horrible, you might feel like you're going to pass out or you're lightheaded or something, and she could play it off if she actually needed it. I love that. Yeah. it's That's a great reading. Um, <laughs> so they get uh, permission to go underground. Well, it seems structurally sound, which is, I feel like I would want a little higher seal of approval than that. Oh, yeah. Well, he said seems, but he didn't say it like it seems. He says it seems structurally sound, but there's nothing down there to see. See? Is what he said. Yes. Okay. We're going to get to this when they go down there. So he also gives Mm -hmm. them a light and was like, it's dark. And that cracked me up too. (laughs) So much. (laughs) I have no idea why. Just because stating the obvious, um, like they're ready to walk down. I think that's the same thing is they're still just both real tired. Yeah. We know that there's all this off-screen storytelling, and for every adventure we see, there's at least one that we don't. Mm-hmm. And so who knows how many days in a row they've been at this, how many cases they've gone from one to the other to the other. I think it's easy to just sort of go through the motions of, okay, we're here at the place, now we're going to go explore the scene, and then we're going to look at bodies. And I think they were just sort of there, and then they were like, oh yeah, we actually need to be able to see. <laughs> um, and so they go down, and it's this sealed up cellar that had been um, underneath the police station pretty much the whole time 
but just not used when they built it. And that's really, really interesting. Though, once they're shining the light around down there, we did get the exposition that there's nothing down there. But they do uncover uh, the, the long dead body. So I'm curious about how much exploring went on previously down there. I mean, they were probably just exploring only so far as to make sure the structure was safe. You think? They weren't looking for clues because the, those weren't cops. Those were engineers. Oh, right. And I guess... Because they're not going to send cops in there until they know that the cops who searched the scene are safe. They're not going to send cops in there if a building's going to come down. Yeah, and you know what? My, my question is coming from this place that is exactly what you mentioned earlier, Jill, where we often in Warehouse 13 and sci-fi things like the X-Files know right away what we need to have our focus on. And right now we don't because I took notes just kind of um, free associating sort of, not that's not the right <laughs> word, but I just took notes of what was in my brain. And at this point I was like, wait, this was a gas explosion, right? Like I've seen this episode several times they the the cellar has nothing to do with the bodies that got killed upstairs and that is true and i did remember that from seeing the episode before but i think that because they are actually allowing their audience in this episode to be unaware of exactly what to look for and to come to the clues and connections at the same rate that the characters do it's a little different of an experience. Which is also usually my favorite form of, of televisual storytelling. A lot of the times, especially in procedural shows, you'll get, you'll either see a murder or you'll see someone finding a body and then that's the end of the teaser and then it's credits and then you're like, oh, well, how did this body get here? This is more complex and I really enjoy that because it shows that the writers trust their audience. Yes. Be smarties. Exactly. So they're shining the light around this long lost cellar and they uncover a very long dead body, which is handcuffed to the wall. Is that right? Well, first they discover a shoe and then under some weird corner that's really darkly lit, they discover a whole body and Micah starts exploring and she finds what she thinks is his wallet, but unfolds it and she discovers it's a secret service badge. And as she's discovering that, Pete finds a Tesla on the body. Yes. And this is the thing. It is a coincidence, but, or sorry, it is unlikely, but possible that you could find a long lost Secret Service agent who was just really in the Secret Service. But Pete pulls out that Tesla and we know, like, there's no other explanation. This guy was a warehouse agent and that's exactly what Pete says. Yeah, and then we're out, which I really like. This was the closest we've gotten to a true teaser. Okay. Technically, it's still the end of Act 1 because they go to commercial right after the right after the theme song. When I was trying to distinguish before between Act 1 and a teaser, this is self-contained. This is it's not multiple storylines that are happening. It's this is one thing meant to grab your attention and then we go out. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that. It was really it was tight. It was very tightly written. Yes. So when we return from commercial, Micah is talking with Artie on the Farnsworth, and their first goal is to identify this dead warehouse agent. So 
Artie seems to suggest that there are ways that they can do this, but it's going to take time. And Micah, during this conversation, is still visibly just disheveled to us. In my mind, my first reaction is, is the sight of this dead warehouse agent so disturbing to her? Is the sight of these burned bodies so disturbing to her? And she actually asks in a very genuine way, like, could an artifact really do this? It's sort of twofold. I think she's feeling very depleted, but I think it's hitting that place where it's forcing adrenaline. Mm. But my focus of the scene was Pete, because, you know, he is so fun and goofy, but we talk a lot about the subversion of things and how Mike is usually the muscle. Sorry, the converse of that is that often in a situation where a man is the muscle, the female is the brains. But Pete can often be the brains. Even though he's goofy, he's really smart. And he says, well, actually, let's think about it. What if this was an actual gas explosion? What if it released an artifact? And that did something to this guy that we just found. And I thought that was so smart, and I thought it was really good that they gave that to Pete. Me too. The I felt the exact same way. Um, so as they have this conversation, we also see Artie in the warehouse, and he's really flustered. What I want to point out is that my girl Claudia is in the background, mm. and we may think this is in a casual way, like she's just she's poking around, we're waiting for her dialogue to come up in a, in a minute but we're gonna come to understand later that in moments like this where Artie is flustered and Artie is having conversations with the agents even if Claudia is not also on the Farnsworth all of the time she's listening and she's paying attention and observing and in just another minute we're gonna see that she takes initiative based on what you know data she collects about the needs of the warehouse in order to make things better for Artie, even though he's a little grumpy pants. He's so grumpy. I just wrote, he's muttering about something. I couldn't even hear what it was, which makes me laugh. Um, but they do need to go and get something from a filing system. And he ends his muttering rant by saying, yeah, the warehouse filing system never quite caught up to the computer age. And Claudia just goes, oh, like your wardrobe? I like it. It's the same way that Pete is annoying to pull Micah out of whatever other mood she's in. Mm -hmm. Claudia insults Artie to get him to focus. Yeah. Which I think is really funny. And so he immediately, instead of muttering about everything in this orb of thoughts that is constantly surrounding him, he just goes, these are earth tones. They never go out of style. And then he goes into the records room and starts explaining what they're doing. What a great connection, right? Because Claudia seems like she's pulling him off focus but in reality Claudia urges him to actually tell her something really really useful about the warehouse what he's doing in there is looking for who that missing agent could be so he's in a record room full of the records of old agents trying to find who this body is yes he's gonna look around um he's arguing with Claudia she gets that information and then he turns her around and kind of pushes her out because he's going to focus and do his thing. As she goes back into the bigger space of the warehouse office, 
they kind of argue about digital versus analog like technologies. I wrote that I have very willowed Willow Giles vibes right now. Oh yeah, definitely. Down to the like red-haired whiz kid sort of. Yes. Although I will say, Rupert Giles, you are a snappy dresser. Yes. Rupert Giles is excellent. <laughs> Claudia decides at this point, which is really funny because it seems like the worst time since Artie is so flustered, um, but she's going to share with Artie something that she's been working on. And adorably, she hid it under a little tarp. For a big reveal. She's going to do a big reveal. <laughs> it's so cute. And also in this interaction where she shows him what she worked on, there's a really cool set decorating detail, which is the card catalog in the background of the office. And I notice it every time because I'm an English PhD, but... If you don't know, it's the way before like digital library, you know, before you could type in the name of a book, uh, librarians would keep these little tiny drawers uh, with these alphabetized cards describing the books they had and where the books were. And I believe absolutely that the warehouse has those and also that they still need them. And maybe not in that those cards are the only organizational schema, because I don't believe that. But we know that these technologies that seem obsolete in the warehouse are actually often really cool. And we do know that in the warehouse archives, there are those little digital, like they look like little digital screens describing the artifacts. So there's, there's this integration between the analog and the digital technology in the warehouse, which is exactly what we're seeing as Claudia reveals this invention that she's made. She's like, let me bridge the digital with the analog. So she reveals the thingy, and I know you're going to have things to say about it, but the one thing that I noted is Artie's response is, is that the Bells and Howells spectroscope? And then she just cuts him off, and I didn't have time to look up what that is, but I noted that that's what she dissembled and morphed into this other thing. But yeah, she has taken warehouse artifacts and made something out of them. Artie says, I don't want something newfangled. And Claudia's like, nah, it's old fangled. <laughs> and I laugh and I love it. And before we met Claudia and began integrating her into the team, we still did have a very quippy, fun sense of humor. But everything she brings is just elevating that to the next level. And Artie's not as sad anymore. Yes. He doesn't have time. He doesn't. And this is the thing is that I think he needs a little, that was going to, uh, okay, I'll just say it. He needs a little like fly on his butt, which is an, <laughs> an idiom from Plato. So it doesn't translate in English very well, but he needs a little <laughs> thing poking him and telling him, you know, go do this, go do that. Like this, this little nag, Claudia is not actually nagging him at all, but making him better. Yes. So she has made a hologram projector, and it's really, really cool. She can't get it to work at first, but true to what we all probably remember from our analog technologies or, you know, VCR or whatever, you give it a good little hit and it comes back to life. Or as she calls it, percussive maintenance. Percussive maintenance. <laughs> Artie is as soon as he sees it is immediately um blown away it's obvious that he is impressed he knows it's cool but i know what jillian's gonna say here 
which is to him, yes, he recognizes that it's cool, but not because Claudia toiled over it or because technology is neat. He recognizes how awesome it is because of how practically useful it will be. He's like, oh, look what we can do with this thing. So they, he's like, oh, oh, zoom in on that. Like, he doesn't turn to Claudia and say, wow, you're right, this is helpful. He instead just goes straight to the picture that she's bringing up of the body, looking for clues, which they find, um, a possible tattoo on the, the body of the dead warehouse agents. So all of this happens, and then Artie walks away without ever praising Claudia for her work. And I want to say on a, on a side note, Claudia's trying so hard she to get is. his attention. And, and more than just with her invention, which is cool, and for the record what it does is it took all of the pictures that Micah sent, compressed them into one file, and then figured out how to make them all into a holographic 3D image, which is insane. Um, she's got this new Jewish older parentally figure in her life, and she says, yeah, I upgraded the whole Megillah. She did not know that phrase before Artie. She was speaking in his Jewishness to try and get him to react. And as a Jewish person, I really appreciated that. And he was just like, okay, bye. And she's like, oh. I love, have we, have we decided that Artie is Jewish? Oh, he's so Jewish. Spoiler alert, there's that Christmas episode. And we meet Artie's dad. He's like, what are you doing with this little Goyim girl? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But anyway, Artie just leaves. And she knows he's impressed, which she likes. And she wasn't overly put off by the fact that he didn't praise her. She just did it herself. Yes. (laughs) She just goes, oh, wow, Claudia, good job. Great initiative. (laughs) Just kept talking, which I loved. Her little joking, you know, puppeting of her conversation that never happened isn't um, angry. It's just like, well, I know he was thinking it sort of thing. Yeah, because he definitely was. He's just not at that level of being social yet. So then moving forward, sorry, we go into the police station and Pete and Micah come back and they say, yeah, there wasn't anything on the security footage. And annoyed Captain Powell goes, well, yes, like I told you there wouldn't be. (laughs) And um, then Micah actually does discover something useful. Whoever was gathering trays of evidence for the body bags they laid out seven trays, but there was only six bodies, which means someone was gone, and then she shows the proof to the captain, who is like, oh, man, and he leaves to go make a phone call to someone who can do something about that. (laughs) And Pete and Micah talk about this person who is now our prime suspect. His name is Reggie Hinton, and we see him outside at night. He goes up to some friends, and it's just like, it's coming after us. And they're like, what? And then they sort of run out of view we see more electrical surgy type things and they are very presumably killed and then find out in the next scene yes that's what happened yeah we hear some really horrible noises and really horrible screams um no one holds back in this episode in terms of this artifact really causing electrocution essentially which is very horrible yeah and not just like taser electrocution which is already terrible but like such high voltages that they that they die yeah 
Like not just not just kill you because there are lots of forms of electricity that can kill you, but like this kills you so much that you are burned. It affects you in that way. We see the horrible deaths, and then also CSI immediately shows up after that cut, and Micah identifies a handprint on one of the bodies, which gives them a clue that they missed someone else. Um, so then that's kind of the end before we move back to Claudia and Artie in the warehouse. In the warehouse, Claudia is reconstructing the tattoo, as Artie asked, and she's describing to Artie what the tattoo has on it, and based on everything she's identifying, a circle and an eagle and something else, he realizes it's a Marine symbol and that the agent must have been a Marine. And then there's a call from the Farnsworth at the crime scene with Pete and Micah, and we learn that there is lots of burns on all of the victims, but no signs of fire anywhere, and that all of the victims so far have been members of gangs. Yes. So their new suspicion is that someone took an artifact from the police station, and Pete says something like, someone's trying to settle an old score. And that really freaks out uh, Captain Powell when they do eventually tell him, because he's like, oh gosh, that's what we need, gangs to be more violent by using a weapon we don't understand, which is also terrifying because we just still don't know at this point point. and also for captain powell as a non-warehouse agent would be the conclusion that you come to that there is some new kind of bomb or grenade or you know poison gas who knows that is doing something and while all this is happening the farnsworth call is also still happening and there's a great exchange between Artie and claudia that shows how much he's grown just over the course of this episode alone. So now they've identified he's a Marine. Not even really a spoiler because there's nothing you can do with this information, but in a future episode, we will find out that Pete was also a former Marine. So this is not yet known in the Warehouse 13 world. It hasn't come up in the show, but if you are a longtime viewer and you've seen more, you may make that connection that when they start going through, oh, this will narrow it down, this is really exciting, one of the people it will narrow it down to is Pete. Not that he's dead, because he's right there, but you know what I'm saying. And, you know, parallels between Pete and older figures in the warehouse and hurt people in the warehouse are prevalent. I, I mean, I feel like at this point in the series, we're meant to constantly be a little bit worried about his future. Is he going to end up like this abandoned agent forgotten is he going to end up like Artie um and as per request Claudia does wow Artie with her 3D uh and is able to reconstruct from the bones that they have and the corpse that they have the face of the agent or a reasonable facsimile thereof and Artie is eliminating possible options and finds the correct agent and his name is Jack Secord. Yes. And my only other thought about this scene is that before Claudia begins helping, Artie says he's having trouble with this dingus you made. Which, <laughs> like, I use the word dingus, but never in that way. Like, no one has ever used it. Right? That way. Like, you say, like, Artie, you dingus. You don't say, you don't call an inanimate object a dingus. It's just really funny, so. 
Um, he's trying so hard. It's like he's trying to use words that he thinks maybe she uses. Um, and then we get something really cool. So now that they have this information, Artie immediately knows what to do, but because he's Artie, does not communicate effectively. <laughs> so Claudia just follows him deeper into the stacks in the warehouse towards this door with a spinning almost conveyor belt but not behind it like i don't know how to describe what that is it's this big system where you move rooms around essentially yeah it's a carousel it's like a luggage carousel at an airport is what it is but many many layers yes Ooh, that's good and then we intercut between that on one side of the door this really huge imposing system and then on the other side of the door it just looks like a normal door and instead of a lock on the front like a safe might have it has a rotary phone dial so cool and Artie is looking at a number on the file of jack c cord that he had and he puts it in and one of the huge boxes is taken off the conveyor belt thingy and he opens the door into what looks like a room at Lena's B&B because it is a room at Lena's B&B because we learn that if an agent is killed or goes missing, the entire room is immediately stored in the warehouse as is in case of a situation like this where they ever need to look for whatever happened to that agent. And I think that is one of the most unique pieces of writing I've ever seen. I love this. I love everything you've said. It's exactly what I was thinking. Of course it was, because it always is. <laughs> Good talk. Um, my other notes that you're not thinking, though, so ha, are that we are getting, throughout this episode, little Star Trek The Next Generation feeling experiences oh you're shaking your head like you were thinking it maybe you were okay <laughs> but bear with me um there's going to be a white man out there somewhere who says no the holodeck is not the same as a hologram and to you i say sir i have more college degrees than you one of them is in science <laughs> fiction studies um i know what i'm talking about so the idea of the hologram is very much of a visual reference to the sort of things that they do on the Star Trek holodeck. And then this idea of having essentially, okay, in the next generation, it's a, a program, it's a computer program that recreates or just out of nowhere creates a specific place for you to go and experience. And of course, it is different. As I said, it's not exact same thing because there is this blending of the analog where there is actually some sort of physical system in place that keeps these rooms and makes them happen. They're not like digital renderings, but it's actually the real artifacts themselves that have been preserved. Because as a longtime Star Trek fan my thoughts were, well, if it was a holodeck simulation and there was a secret in it, um, you know, there could be there could be a secret that the computer knows that you don't know, but that's highly unlikely unless we bring in Moriarty. See, I do know Star Trek. Um, unless, you know, the programmer put it in, there would be someone who knows. So that is all to say that this feels very much like a continued conversation with well-known and well-loved science fiction 
but it does things in its own way and it's so great and cool and I love it. Um, just jumping way ahead, just for the sake of validating your argument, when when she does yeah she she doesn't just do it she says we're house 13 next generation and makes the what is it vulcan salute yeah okay see i i know things about star trek but not like you know things about star trek um so yes you're but you're validating what i'm saying because what the writers so wonderfully did was they planted seeds in your head and then they validated you at the end, which is what a good writer always does. It makes you go, oh, it was there. I'm so smart. I was right. And that's how you want, especially a science fiction audience, to feel when they make it through the episode with you and are on the right page. Because often science fiction asks more of you than other kinds of fiction. It's asking you to follow the traditional narrative as well as this heightened narrative with its own set of rules. Mm-hmm. And... It's nice for the writers of that kind of content to validate the readers while also not dumbing down the content for them, which I think is really cool. So they go into this room that belonged to Jack Secord, which also, by the way, provides such great mythology to this show, to Warehouse 13, because it makes us question everything about where Pete and Micah are living and how... We know the warehouse is semi-sentient, so now is the B&B semi-sentient? Yeah. What is the relationship between the B&B and the warehouse? It asks so many questions of you that you know you're not going to get answers to right now, but it, it instantly makes the world feel bigger. And I love that you mentioned the B&B in this way. Like, well, we know the warehouse is so is so supernatural, but surely the B&B is more, you know, mundane. And um, I love that as we go through different arcs in the series, we learn more about the B&B. Specifically, we learn more about Lena, who I know is a character Jill loves. Um, Yes. So they go into the room and look around. They find out that Jack was a smoker. He has just, wow, so many. So much cancer. Which shocks Claudia and you and me but Artie's like ah, it was the 60s which makes me laugh um and then Claudia finds a letter that says I'll be in town a few days until then dot 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 as if it's definitely written for someone to see yes and Artie looks at the handwriting smells perfume on it realizes it's for a woman and then tries to figure what else he was writing and where. And this gives us some insight into Artie, too, that we'll get a payoff for a while later. But he uses some special skills and realizes that whatever was being written on probably had indentation marks, so he uses a pencil to color the surface and bring to the highlight where the indentations were and realizes that whatever he was writing was addressed to someone named Rebecca in St. Louis. Yes, it is super cool, but that indent trick is something that I've seen in like every detective show. However, it does work. So it's not like a cliche that never happens. And I feel like Claudia's response when she goes, oh, cool, like is because she's seen it in television, but she didn't ever think she would see it solve a mystery in real life. And it does. So they now have an address for Rebecca St. Clair. And we go right to Pete and Micah visiting that home. 
And the woman who answers the door, I think she is so perfectly cast. She is just very sweet, very gentle. She's an older lady, not not like the oldest lady, just an older lady who is very kind to them and seems like, oh my, you know, the Secret Service is here. Wow. But she doesn't look frail and she looks sturdy. She doesn't look, you know, she looks like Betty White. She just is built to last. <laughs> so they tell this woman that they they found a body and something was addressed to her and they asked for more information and basically she immediately realizes that the body belongs to Jack and that it confirms what we knew that there was some sort of relationship between them and she says is this connected to what happened at the police station which is a big leap right because well St. Louis is a big city so well I think several things on a surface level she does know that they're secret service agents and so maybe a cold case of finding a body wouldn't wouldn't bring a secret service agent it would just bring someone who is a detective in cold cases or whatever um but a huge explosion in a police station and secret service agents in town then the secret service agents come to you it makes sense that you would think maybe they're related but also i think she's definitely testing the waters to see if they know who she is. Ah, you're right. You're so right. She is obviously very sharp. Obviously, um, we know later why she responds um, with so much good connections. But yet, she still offers tea and cookies, just like my grandma would. And but I just want to say, Pete and Micah do their Pete and Micah thing. I feel almost like this episode was a way, like a like a litmus test almost for the show to see if they were going to stick to this darker thing or go with this lighter, brighter comedy. Mm-hmm. And so they threw in elements of both and kept sort of a neutral, sedate, central tone. And every time, every time the humor won out over anything oh, else absolutely. in this episode. And so she goes, is this connected with what happened in the police station? And at the same time, Pete says yes, and Micah says no. And then she offers them tea and cookies, and at the same time, Pete says yes, and Micah says no. And Micah's like, now I look like the jerk to the old lady is clearly what's in her face, but she's just trying to get the job done and go home. And Micah would never say yes to accepting someone's you know, offer. However, Pete, first of all, accepts the gift just because he's hungry. And second of all, because she specifically offered cookies. And we know, we know how Pete feels about cookies. He loves cookies. And Micah makes a little face and says, is that a vibe or is your stomach just growling? He goes, I haven't eaten since last night. And you can clearly see it's like late afternoon. Oh, yeah. there, so, I mean, he would be hungry. Um, but also, I just I just want to say about Micah, I do think that there, she's not immune to the value of building rapport. And sometimes in law enforcement, you do accept tea. So sure. that you can see, like, the mannerisms, see if someone's hiding anything, you know. Even if you don't drink it, you, you accept the offer. So I think she's... I don't think it's completely out of character for her to accept. Okay. I think I think you're right. But also I think that she's still um, not 
partaking of sugar if she can help it that's true so uh, you know what that's a way better answer obviously she doesn't want sugar unless she stress eats um but my only thought was that maybe micah felt she was being respectful by turning down the tea and cookies yeah i mean because she she knows immediately that they're warehouse agents she knows exactly what's going on um but i think she is at this point concerned about what being an agent who abandoned the warehouse would mean for her but she still remembers what it was like to be in that job and have that danger and she's like you know maybe they just want some cookies i can see they've been at this for a while kind of thing and surely you know it's a bummer micah doesn't eat cookies because with her exhaustion and being tired a cookie would really help yeah and then um as pete is talking to her because she does return with cookies Micah steps away because she gets a call and she gets really serious and Pete notices that this isn't normal Micah serious. This is serious Micah serious. (laughs) And um, there's an audio clip. I know. Um, And so she's like, okay, we got to go. And Micah, Micah's like, okay, we got to go. And he goes to take all of the cookies and she goes, don't take all of them so he he leaves one cookie one singular cookie (laughs) i love it because he wanted them all and he only left one because micah said so (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah oh he says he goes thanks they're really good cookies i'm really hungry he just like babbles a bit (laughs) as he's on his way out and and on the way out she goes have there been more have more people been electrocuted and she's like "I'm, i'm sorry we really can't say and she Micah is trying really hard to be professional, but also get to where she needs to be and also, like, not be rude to this lady who she just gave bad news to. Yeah. And so she's got all that going on in her head. Otherwise, I think she would have made the connection sooner to what we know later about them not having mentioned electrocution. Well, definitely. Micah has a lot on her mind because we know she's so observant and... What I love about Micah's observantness and we learn in future episodes about how good of a memory she has and how well read she is and all of these sort of personal character details. Um, she, She always has those conversations in her mind and she'll remember this conversation later even though she didn't make the connection now. She'll remember it verbatim and it will help her, which is just her being badass and cool and smart. She's great. So We love Micah. Oh, we love her. So we cut to a different crime scene, and some guy is struggling with a cop. Um, Speaking of Micah, this brief angle on her as she watches the guy struggling has the best Micah hair that we've seen so far in the show. If you don't believe me, just look at the way that the, the lighting is on those curls. It's beautiful and perfect. And sometimes she's got a little highlight going on. You know, usually I like it without the highlight, but she's looking just glorious, so yay. Um, there's, <laughs> there is a d- discussion about this random, you know, guy in a gray hoodie that they're holding, and it's that he's a witness, and he says a cop did this. And he seems really scared. He's like, I don't want to be here because the cops are going to hurt me. And Captain Powell is there as Pete and Micah approach. And they're like, oh, he says a cop did it. And Captain Powell's like, yeah, because they never say that. No one's ever said that to get out of trouble. And then he tells the kid to scram and the kid bolts. 
And can I just, we're not going to go all the way there, but very brief, heavy themes. Um, the dismissiveness of Powell, just not even considering that it's possible a police officer could be causing harm, is challenging. And I think we just think of those sorts of things in a very culturally specific way in this here and now. Um, but, you know, in the time and in this moment of this particular episode, it's just kind of like a bit of information that does turn out to be true. It's an artifact, so it's not saying that it's the police officer's actual desire to do that, but an interesting just sort of thing to look back at in retrospect. I agree, and I think that this could not happen in a show of any quality in today's world. There's there's basically only one cop who wasn't accounted for at the time of the incident, and his name is Clark, and he is on leave right now because he lost his temper at people involved in gangs. And he is the gang expert. Yes. He's like the head of the task force or something like yes. that. Um, and... So he's not supposed to be in the office, but he's also the only one who wasn't accounted for. So Micah just turns to Pete and goes, have you ever stopped by your office on your day off? <laughs> and, and Pete just goes, no, but I bet you have. Like matching her conspiratorial level, but not at all matching her experience, which I think is great. Um, and what we get from that is she thinks that probably Clark has gone to the office and did these things to these people under the guise of being on leave. So they go to his house, but before they get there, we see Clark in the bathroom, and he is not well. His eyes are sunken, and there's, like, electrical sparks shooting off of him, and he's, like, gripping the sink and looking in the bathroom mirror and not feeling good. And then Pete and Micah arrive on the scene, and they hear the moaning, they hear the weird noises through the door, and before they can even enter... Pete notices that electricity is buzzing off of the door handle. And they're like, that's not right. So they announce themselves, as is good police work. And uh, when he doesn't let them in, they burst into his apartment unit and see him trying to jump out of the window. Not in a self-harm kind of way, but knowing that something bad is happening. He's trying to get away from people. If I can pause, right before he jumps, we see the scary thing on his back. Yeah. And Pete and Micah see it too, and then he jumps out the window and a chase ensues. Yes, and I, in my notes, wrote that it was this weird scorpion thing, but later Pete calls it a lobster-looking thing, which I think is a slightly more universal reference. I was going to say, it's like we're from different parts of the country. Yeah. Um, but it's something that's on his back, and it's scary. And when they finally meet Clark in the alley, he's dead on the ground, and whatever was on his back is gone, and we're out on a shoop-shoop-shoop box. Woo! Scary. So, we return from the commercial break, and... Pete and Micah are on the Farnsworth with Artie. Artie says he really needs Clark's body, but Powell has already taken it. Pete, however, says that he can describe what he saw. It's a nasty, metallic, lobster-looking thing, and he's not wrong. That is a very apt description. Yeah. Artie is soaking in this information, eagerly trying to figure out what it is, and um, from what they described about it disappearing when Clark died... 
maybe it was stuck to Jack's body when he died too. So this quickly prompts um, Claudia knows, because like I said, she's always listening and observing. She knows exactly what Artie wants, which is, you know, if, if you're a nurse or a volunteer, you know that if you have to flip a person in a bed, you need at least one partner to help you do it. And if you don't want to break all the bones of the skeleton, you need someone to help you lift the sheet to do it. And she knows that her help is needed, but she's not happy about it. She runs over already cringing before help is even asked for. <laughs> uh, she runs over and just like, Helps him flip it over, and she's like, yuck, you know, <laughs> and then runs away. She's she's like, yep, yep, yuck, okay, bye. <laughs> it's, it's perfect, and it's also, you know, I'm sure it's written great, but Allison just knows how to, how, how to, like, be funny in a scene that is .01 seconds long. Like, it's great. Um, so they flip the body. Micah continues giving information, and I have a little tangent about the um, the chalkboard. So if you want something before that, I won't start my tangent yet. Where's the chalkboard? So Micah tells Artie that the energy, the electricity emanated from both the human and the artifact. And Artie rushes over to a blackboard and goes, that eliminates the last possibility, and I want to talk about the chalkboard. But I don't... Okay, talk to me about it. Okay, so I am the kind of person who loves to pause the TV and read anything written on a surface. And so I wanted to look at this blackboard, and I spent way too long doing so, where the thing that he crosses off from the blackboard list, the last possible thing that he had speculated about, was called the Babylonian Battery, which is cool. And he says it out loud, too, but I don't know what it is. Yes, so, and I don't think we know what it is. It's, it sounds feasible as a warehouse artifact, and we heard Artie mumble about it when he was first, you know, in an earlier scene talking about what's happening. Um, but... He also had other theories that had already been crossed off. Um, so in no particular order, these were the ones that I wrote down. Teller's microfusion reactor, the Dayton Project, Gilbert's headstone amber, Marconi's oscillator, here's my personal favorite, Thunderer of the Night, N-I-T-E. Um, my second favorite Magno Hydrodynamic Generator. I googled that one, and it's a real thing. <laughs> um, my third, my third favorite, Egg of Columbus. <laughs> um, one that I could not get the last few words of, but ELF, E-L-F, all caps, transmitted through Kennedy, H-H something, um, then just Faraday, which is brilliant because as a historian of science, um, this was a like 19th century scientist who made a, a ton of discoveries regarding like electricity and bodies. So that would be a great guess. And then there are a couple more that I couldn't read. So I don't want to go too much into, into it, but if you want to talk to us about these hypothetical objects, I'm so into whatever you could like, why did Columbus have an egg? What kind of egg is it? Um, Thunderer of the Night, I thought was a joke or like an inside set joke because they spelled night in the like um, 
not wrong because I'm not a prescriptivist, but they spelled night in the shorthand N-I-T-E way. But thunder, right? To me, this could be some sort of like Scandinavian artifact or, you know, an actual thing about thunder. And I think the most interesting thing for the sake of this podcast and the things we've already discussed, like the big revolving circuit of B&B rooms, is just what we're learning about the mythos of this world. So Artie has some artifacts that he knows by name, right? Something like um, Marconi's Oscillator is clearly like, or Egg of Columbus is clearly like an object and the person. Um, On the other hand, something like Faraday is just him knowing a lot of history and having a guess about a particular historical person. But this just gives me these really, really big questions. Like, are there artifacts that people in the warehouse know about, but are out on the loose, but they know are out on the loose? Like, well, I got the sense that a lot of times they're pulling from obscure myths and legends mm-hmm. or early versions of a fairy tale, like, that might be rooted in more truth. So if something happens that seems to sort of fit oh. one of those, then they're like, okay, maybe that created an artifact. Oh my gosh. So they're like, here's the thing. I like to think that I'm Claudia, but I'm really just already just like in Buffy, I'm really just a watcher. <laughs> like... If you're an English PhD or a historian, like that's what your job is, is to find the early texts and figure out what they mean and closely analyze them for their significance. And so, yes, that's maybe they've just read a lot of source material and they're like, oh, in Columbus's journals, he talks about this and that. And that sounds artifacty to me. So it's like a possibility but not verified but they kind of know what the possibilities are yeah you're so smart i know it sounded like that was my idea but i just i just understood your idea and then spirit mediumed you through my vocal cords as we do as we do. <laughs> so sorry that um, is a tangent but now no don't can... be sorry it's so smart and i'm i'm glad to to know it also just as an aside to me please send me your list and i will include it in the show notes for people to reference yay <laughs> um and i mean that was a brilliant break i had no, i had literally nothing written there and i'm so <laughs> glad you filled it with like genius thank but, you um, this is the point where micah realizes Rebecca said electrocution and she alerts Pete and Pete's like ah and then they go back and this is this all happens really fast we don't need to necessarily do beat by beat but they go back to Rebecca's there's some cagey back and forth and then eventually Rebecca's like all right I'm not gonna be pretending anything yes we know I know your agents I am a warehouse agent here's information um can I just say though that when when Pete goes, you're a warehouse agent, she says, welcome to the conversation. Like, actually, she says that to Micah because, once again, Pete got there first. He was the brains. Okay, I couldn't remember who she said it to, but it's amazing because, like you said, she's not frail, but her age and her kindness makes us underestimate her. And then she is like, girl, I got this, you know? Yeah, because we should never underestimate women in this show. Or in life. <laughs> yes. Yes. Correct. Um, and then, I mean, that all happens really fast. It's a very tightly written scene. Um, 
And when I say that, I just mean that's a scene where no words are wasted, no actions are wasted, everything gets you to the point, but still has the tension you need it to have. Um, so we go past that, and we're back in the warehouse, and Claudia and Artie, they identify the artifact from a picture, but they don't really know exactly what it is yet, and they're looking <laughs> into it, and then something really cute happens, because the tables, every scene with Artie and Claudia adjust their relationship in this episode. Like, we can see the growth of their relationship in real time, which I think is really beautiful, and so now Claudia notices all this weird writing underneath the picture that doesn't resemble anything she's ever seen. She goes, oh, what's it mean? And now Artie's pretending to be smart and looking for her approval. He's like, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's old. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> but he, he's trying to, like, seem cool. And she goes, do you want me to, like, do my thing with it? And he says, you go, girl. And she goes, no, stop. Don't. Don't do that. Don't say that. Please stop it. He's like, yeah, sorry. I shouldn't. That's not me. <laughs> it's not Artie, but the fact that it occurs to him to say, and here's the thing, the phrasing is not a thing he would say, but the sentiment is what he's feeling. Yeah, he's trying, but I just, I like it. I like that the first scene, she was so eager for his approval and like halfway through the episode, now we see him being eager for hers. And I just think that's a really sweet moment that we shouldn't lose in the more exciting scenes of the episode definitely um and that's where we cut back to rebecca's house and she's pulling out photos from jack's investigation before we learn facts of the case we also learn that jack had vibes <gasps> yes and you see this beautiful exchange just only of looks Pete and Micah look at each other and there's a little bit of a sink in the music. It sinks down a little and you're like, ooh, there's another parallel to Pete and it's not a good parallel. It's not like, oh, that's cool because this guy died a terrible death and left his girlfriend to live, you know, 40 years not knowing what happened to him. I honestly think a big thing that the writers want us to feel this season is sort of a storm cloud over Pete. I feel like we're constantly worrying about what's going to happen to Pete. He's too much like Artie. He's too much like this dead agent. What do all these things mean? He keeps getting into trouble. We know he has alcoholism and that's come up. What is going to attack Pete and make his life harder? And when you put it in the larger context of what's actually happening over the course of the season, I think it's an interesting misdirect, but this definitely plays into that feeling of anxiety that we have for Pete right now. For sure. Um, and then we keep learning about what Jack was doing. He had identified that some things of this case were connected to a museum with an exhibit from the 11th century. And that's the exposition we get. But when Rebecca is explaining that, she interjects her explanation with a description of the warehouse was Jack's first love. Um, Rebecca herself left the warehouse and chose to not succumb to her whole life being there, but uh, she somewhere hoped that Jack may come back or she may find him even if he was lost and confused. But I think it's clear to us that she was totally realistic that that wouldn't occur, that it would never be the same, and that he had been a casualty of the warehouse, essentially. 
you know, we see Pete and Micah react to that very sympathetically. And then she keeps moving through the box of belongings that were related to this case. And she pulls out a page that Pete and Micah look at where there's an image and in handwritten pen, Jack had has had uh, written hand of God over it. And the image looks like there's a lightning bolt on a sort of vaguely ancient sort of Eastern looking piece of, you know, art or drawing. And that's where everything comes together and Artie calls to reveal that this is the artifact, the spine of the Saracen, um, which he knows, I'm sure, based on the translation that Claudia was helping him do of his work. So they talk through the artifact, and Pete and Micah say, well, what's a Saracen? And they say, a Saracen is a Turk. This dates back to the Crusades. And... I guess that that is the perfect time for me to introduce our artifact expert for today. Today's artifact expert is Dr. Suleiman Murad from Smith College. He teaches courses on Islamic history, law, and religion. His research focuses on the hermeneutics of the Quran, medieval Islam, Jerusalem, and the time of the Crusades. He has appeared in film documentaries including The Sultan and the Saint and Jerusalem, Center of the World. His books include The Mosaic of Islam, A Conversation with Perry Anderson, and The Intensification and Reorientation of Sunni Jihad Ideology in the Crusader Period. So he is a very well-recognized scholar to discuss the Crusades with us. And the reason that I um, reached out to him in particular was because he wrote an amazing... um, Well, actually, he was interviewed for an amazing article, which was actually written by Missy Sullivan. Um, But in this article for the History Channel, he answered Missy's um, questions about the Crusades and how most everything that we as Americans know about the Crusades is from the historical accounts written by the West, the Europeans, the Christians. And so an Islamic view of the same event is completely different than what a lot of us, including me and Jillian, learned in school just because the sources were one-sided. So with all of that said, um, that's the approach that we're going to hear in his interviews. And the first is his um, description of the definition of Saracen. The term Saracen is a very old term. Uh, that uh, Christians use to refer to Muslims. Uh, we, we don't know exactly what its origin, but we know that it was, up, uh, it was used by uh, the Christians to describe the Arab Muslims from the time of the conquest afterwards. It was sometimes used in a very negative way, derogatory way, but it wasn't always. And during the period of the Crusades in particular, uh, that term uh, took, if one were to use uh, this kind also of uh, dichotomy, uh, two uh, nuances. One that is inherently negative, uh, and uh, to some extent, some groups still use the term Saracen in a very negative way. Uh, you could compare it to the N-word in the, uh, in in American society and the problem of that word uh, and what it invokes. Um, 
uh, of a horrible experience of specific you know african american groups uh, so the Saracen can be used in that uh, racist kind of uh, uh, context. But uh, also because of the Crusades and because of the Crusader encounter with the Muslims generated a certain positive, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for the word, romantization of the Muslim and the Arab. Uh, uh, and, uh, and this comes with, uh, uh, it, it, it maintained its uh, relevance in European society to a large extent, this uh, attachment and uh, uh, this romanticization with the Orient to a large extent, uh, with the fact that those uh, Muslim soldiers are very brave uh, or Islamic philosophy is very sublime. We could see this uh, if one were to, for instance, go back and watch some of the films by Cecil DeMille when he portrayed uh, Saladin as being this very gentle ruler, though very sharp, uh, and contrasted him with the savage barbarian European dignitaries of the uh, 12th century. Uh, so there was this kind of romanticization uh, that sometimes the word Saladin is used uh, in, in, in that context. Uh, and uh, uh, it's still used today in these both two uh, nuances. Um, just want to mention there is a very well-known uh, English uh, rugby team that's called the Saracens. And obviously, uh, the name is uh, to appeal to that notion, the, the Saracens are these valiant fighters. And here you have rugby team, these players who go to the field and they are going to be uh, competing with other rugby players and they want to defeat them. So you are bringing this kind of zeal of this Saracen in a very positive way. Obviously, uh, in this particular context, the word Saracen is not, is not at all used with any negative uh, connotation. But you could still see others invoking it um, in that uh, sense because the negative aspect of the Saracen uh, tries to detach the Muslims from being uh, part of the community of monotheism. Um, and that's why uh, the name can be negative and can have negative connotations, because you, by refusing to acknowledge them as Muslims, you are refusing to acknowledge them. And insisting on Saracen, you are refusing to acknowledge them as monotheists and insisting that the, they uh, believe in some kind of pagan deities, uh, which are still uh, very uh, in circulation. And you know, there's still uh, many people uh, today uh, repeat that uh, Allah is not God and, and things like that. So all of these things are tied in one way or another to this uh, negative aspect of the word Saracen. So it depends uh, to who is using it and in what sense they are using it, uh, whether to uh, say that this is negative or positive. So one of the things we need to be critical of about it as, um, well, at least as Jillian and myself are not um, Muslim people, is that it implies difference because it doesn't acknowledge the religion of that person as being a monotheistic religion, just like Judaism or Christianity. The, the negative potential for using it can be that you devalue that that religion is on the same level as the other major world religions of the time. Which also doesn't mean that we're devaluing Hinduism or Buddhism. No, no, sorry. Or or polytheistic religions. It just means that 
they are casting and by they i mean the christians of the crusades are casting muslims as a completely different unrelated identity which isn't true yes so um that was really helpful to learn from him let me make sure i finished my notes on this and then in that same scene there's also a description about a legend that Artie says was about an elite warrior cult of just unstoppable fighters. And our expert today asked me to call him by his first name, which is why I'm doing it. Um, usually I use doctor, but he said no need for titles. So I asked Suleiman about that uh, possible legend or myth. And let me insert his answer. Uh, so uh, I, I'm not aware of anything similar to uh, what you are describing. But again, uh, these legends sometimes can arise from uh, an exaggeration of encounters uh, or by taking elements that emerge from that period, infuse it with some of romanticization about the other and reuse it as something that is your own. What is the most likely thing is that the Christians created a, created a legend which legends are all created, so that's fine. But they created a legend based on their own point of view and not based on how um, the Muslims viewed them, their own culture, do you know what I mean? So this ties back to the next uh, bit of information that they read about the spine of the Saracen, which is that the spine requires a lifetime commitment. Which Pete jokes, oh, I had a girlfriend like that once, and both Micah and Artie laugh, which I actually really like because it's getting a bit more of the dynamic back. Because we know Pete doesn't mean everything he says. We know this about him. He says things to get a reaction, but he doesn't say things, for the most part, specifically to upset people. And the fact that Micah's responding, it's like, okay, she's getting a bit of her energy back. We're getting a bit of the team back, which I really enjoy. It's it's lifting the episode. Yes. And then the next thing that I want to insert here is just a really small clip that builds on Suleiman's last clip, which is this idea of the lifetime commitment. So that's uh, that's the complexity of uh, 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 history is that uh, we don't have anything. Uh, in Islamic history where uh, the Arabs uh, or Muslims for that matter uh, were perceived to be the model for fighting. Uh, actually, the Muslims themselves used to look at other groups. Sometimes they, were, they used to romanticize about the crusaders themselves being much more valiant fighters than the Muslims. And that's noted a lot in crusader literature from the period that it was hard for them to chase the Muslims because they are often full in this uh, uh, arm gear and uh, protective gear. So, and they have very heavy horses. So they have heavy weaponry, uh, heavy armory and heavy horses. uh, And they are not able to outduel those uh, Muslim fighters who tend to be uh, wearing no armory whatsoever or very little of that, only carrying uh, this very light sword uh, and therefore, they could run away very fast. And if you were to chase them, essentially, you, you, you would ruin yourself because 
uh, your horse can't maneuver anymore, you get very tired, uh, and they can come back and defeat you easily without actually having to stand and uh, fight you uh, face to face. Uh, so uh, they, uh, if, if one were to go by what the description from this period was, that the, the Saracens were not these valiant fighters who stand in their positions. Uh, they, they use lots of maneuvering tactics in order to win knowing that they were at a high disadvantage versus a much more better organized uh, armies, uh, namely the Europeans and namely the what we call the cavalry of the Crusaders, uh, who were much better valiant fighters. So we have here the whole total reverse from the period. So from a Muslim perspective, if you say, who is the model of bravery in war, they will tell you a crusader. because. They will, and they will refer them as these idiots that they, they will fight till death, uh, which no Muslims will do. Um, and, and that's essentially the irony, how that image changed uh, completely, but also that should tell us how much of the way we think of history mirrors our own uh, world today. So we take a lot of examples and models from our world of today and we project them back. Uh, so in in some way today we have uh, this phenomenon that we call militant Islam uh, with lots of m militant Muslims uh, and we project back uh, this thing as being a constant in the Islamic tradition where actually it is really a modern phenomenon. What Suleiman was always emphasizing for me as a person who knows so little about the Crusades is that but the Crusade period is for hundreds of years and there's multiple wars included in that period and what you lose when you when you lump it together and what he says is hard for scholars of any um, level of experience or background who study the Crusades is that it's just a lot of stuff and you can't you can't say any one thing about one experience. It's a lot of different experiences and some were totally not lifetime commitments. Some were like temporary trading deals. Um, so and then we go out and then we come back for Act Four. Pete and Micah are following on a lead based on where they thought the Tesla, not the Tesla, <laughs> where they thought the spine might have gone. Um, and they they see a woman running out of her house with a gun, screaming terrified. And she says, I shot him and he kept coming at me. And she's not seemingly making a lot of sense, but Pete and Micah definitely believe her. And then they see a guy with the spine on him and a bullet wound through his chest moving very quickly towards him and he looks like he's in agony mm -hmm. and they take the gun from the woman they tell her to run the person who it is revealed is her ex-husband who she had a restraining order against uh he dies and when they turn over his body the spine is already gone and Pete and micah are terrified yes like because they know nothing funny yeah, they know what's happening. Nothing funny is happening. No one's cracking jokes, which is how you know it's real serious if even Pete can't crack jokes. And they try to keep their backs together, but they also need to cover more ground. And eventually, Pete is the one who sees the spine coming, and he pushes Micah out of the way. Because of course he does! I know. And it's like, you know Micah would have pushed him out of the way if she had seen it first, but she just didn't. And he just shoves her away, 
he allows the spine to get on him because he knows it's going to have to get on somebody. And he is in pain and he screams and it's heartbreaking. And if you listened to our Eddie McClintock interview, you will know that there were several screams in this episode that caused him to really push his acting abilities. This is not, I think, the one that he is referring to. I think that one comes later. But we see Pete immediately in a darker and more raw state than we have ever seen him. And all these parallels to Artie and to Jack and to all these things that we were really worried about so far in this season are starting to seem more and more real and more and more of a threat. And Micah's just begging to help him. And he's like, no, I'll hurt you. And she comes at him and they touch and he basically electrocutes her a bit and she passes out and he runs. He just needs to get away. He needs to get away from Micah. He needs to get away from anyone he can hurt. And it's heartbreaking because this is this guy, the same guy who pushed her out of the way so that he could take the pain from her is now like a pain making machine. Mm-hmm. The it's nightmare awful. for such a kind and like, you know, brotherly person like Pete who wants to help you. And like we've talked about from the pilot, when he was able to clear his mind with no difficulty, his self control. And I'll also call back to, you know, our um, discussion in 103 about. Eddie McClintock and Pete's recovery and how learning self-control and, you know, being eight years or 18 years sober, it's something you've really practiced and a real huge, huge strength to be able to say, I know that there is this urge inside of me that might hurt somebody or myself or whoever, and I'm going to fight it with all of my heart. Like, that's exactly what Pete's character rushes to do he runs out of there and he knows exactly like i need to get away i need to take care of this there's no risk worth taking if other people are going to be hurt i mean and it, it's because he's such a good man he's this all comes down to him being a very good man who really has used his life to learn to be better and it's heartbreaking and so the next thing we see is micah waking up and Powell finding her and finally not being quite so crotchety and he seems actually concerned and she immediately is like where's Pete and he's like are you okay she's like I don't have time for this I need to find Pete he went that way and she gets into a car and she Farnsworth's Artie and Claudia and she gets some information from Claudia and Artie which I think is the smart call before revealing what has occurred. So so she gets what she can get, and then she's like, okay, now I'm going to impress upon them the seriousness of this. And it's like, Artie, it's on Pete. It's got Pete. And she's heartbroken, and we just sort of see, obviously, Rebecca was an agent. She knows how to track people. She's been following the case. She cared about Jack. And without a word, she just gets into the car next to Micah and shares... I would just call it a look of strength. It's not necessarily compassion or sympathy. It's something a bit more nourishing and sustaining than that. Yes. And then Micah, clearly a bit stronger from whatever they just exchanged, but still very scared, 
says, I can't and I will not lose another partner. I won't do it. And Artie and Claudia both get it. They get it. I I love the I will not as like this really, really forceful thing. Like, I am going to stop this from happening. I'm going to save Pete. You know, she's not saying it out of weakness, but she's saying it out of the strength she gained from her previous trauma and suffering, which is just amazing. And I also like that the way she says it prevents Artie or Claudia from saying something stupid that they might think is helpful. Like, no matter what happens, it's not your fault. Like, it's something that, you know, some someone might say to another person in that situation that she does not want to hear. She's like, I don't want to hear contingency plans. What I want to hear is that you are going to help me fix this because it will be fixed. Yes. So I, I do want to point out that the information that they're gathering um, in this scene where Mike is in the car on the Farnsworth is important. Um, it's especially important just because of the phrasing, which, you know, they say that the spine was designed to turn a person into a killing machine. It's going to use a person up like a battery. So yes, I think for the sake of this episode and for the perspectives that these, you know, European American characters have, it makes sense. Um, it's also just interesting that, uh, I, I wonder if you would talk with me for a second about the artifact itself, that it's this metal spine, um, because I don't know, I mean, metal, I know a conductor of electricity makes sense, um, and obviously Suleiman in one of my clips talks a lot about the amazing science and technologies that the Islamic Empire had, so it's not really about that, but I, I'm just so curious about this weapon and just the, it turns you into a machine almost literally because we, especially in, you know, sci-fi on the sci-fi channel where we used to have Cylons, like we're thinking about these metal machines and it's just, I don't know. I just want, I just want to expand on it. I don't know what to say. Okay. I have two things I want to say. I've heard of things like shine up your spine or a spine of steel. And I think it's a, pl- a play off of that metaphor. Mm-hmm. A steel spine is always a metaphor for strength. So if you take that to the extreme and make it into an artifact, that also makes sense. Um, In terms of the amazing innovations of Islamic culture in that time. The period roughly from the 9th to the 16th century to a large extent, uh, is what we call the golden age of the Islamic civilization. And uh, this happened in different places, uh, in different times. It's not, there wasn't one single center of this uh, great Islamic civilization. The center moved as a result of uh, socio-political dynamics, wars, uh, conflicts. Uh, but uh, at least we can trace some kind of a rigorous and very active scholarly life and tremendously uh, uh, groundbreaking scientific uh, uh, research and discovery that uh, took place from this period, the 9th, roughly to the 16th century. Uh, it started in Baghdad. And the comparison to, if, you, if one were to use the world of today, is that uh, the Islamic uh, world witnessed uh, the rise of uh, very stable and wealthy civilization 
that uh, generated a lot of money to sponsor uh, scientists and even the humanities uh, and social sciences as well. Uh, and the scholars, therefore, uh, were uh, given huge freedom to uh, do their own research and uh, to digest the civilizations before them and what they accomplished, especially the Greco-Roman uh, civilization, but also the South Asian civilizations, bring all the knowledge that existed before them, reflect on it, and uh, change it, uh, amend it, and that uh, in some aspect also uh, this impacted Islam itself as a religion. So it wasn't only about secular uh, discourses, but it was also about uh, religious knowledge. Uh, so that civilization that roughly we call the Islamic civilization uh, witnessed uh, this kind of stability. It started in Baghdad in the ninth century. It was uh, a, a very uh, active kind of translation movement uh, where Muslim scholars and uh, non-Muslim scholars, Christians and Jews and uh, South Asianists, uh, Persians translate helped translate a lot of uh, the knowledge that existed before Islam uh, to Arabic, which created a renaissance in the Islamic world. Uh, and it is partly this translation with the wealth uh, that launched lots of uh, colleges, uh, lots of uh, research directions uh, in mathematics, in astronomy, in the humanities, in the social sciences. Uh, that uh, in very many ways is comparable to the 18th, 19th century Western civilization and the kind of uh, rich knowledge that pro it produced that we call today the Western civilization. We can extrapolate, especially in a science fiction context, that there was some lost knowledge that we don't have now, but they absolutely might have had available to them that was just not around in Western Europe. Oh, definitely. That's so helpful. And that's exactly, it's actually going to build on really well with his clip because he talks about the Islamic Empire having the equivalent of the Western Renaissance, but like 500 years before, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, like they had those things and they were translating and building and learning and so I, I quite like that as um, the explanation that it was some sort of science or technological or medical development. Um, because the thing that Suleiman was skeptical of is just, is it making any unfair stereotypes about the Saracen warriors? Or, you know, like you said before, it's so many steps removed from that that maybe it's just pure science fiction and there is a fun explanation in our brains that we can use. I think it's two things. I think on the one hand it's pure science fiction but historical science fiction like it's science fiction based on historical science that is mostly lost to us now because yeah like who knows what kind of things from ancient Greece and ancient Rome were lost over those many many hundreds of years. Right. Um so, yeah, so I think that's really interesting that we can extrapolate that. But I do think also, as mindful viewers living in the 21st century, we need to be very mindful of the way media can and often does victimize and villainize 
any sort of Semitic people, whether it's Jewish people or Muslim people, um, and that shared history. And I think especially now, uh, Muslim people are very targeted. So we have to be responsible viewers. We still have to make sure that we're not making some sort of correlation that, yeah, these have always been a very violent people, because that's not true. It is a religion of peace, like most religions are religions of peace. Yes, and I, I think that's exactly it. I think it's just this artifact is like PCP, as they say, but it's just literally one artifact. So after that, Claudia is sitting with Artie, and Artie is kind of like, oh, I got to make this work. I got to figure out how to help. And we see that he actually calls her over and is like, ah, look at this, I've got this. I, like, he can tell that he almost has what he needs, but he doesn't yet. And so he, he calls her over and she, she comes, like, back to back with him. And I love the, the way we see her thought process happen um, because I identified it as, like, Claudia works through, like, the whole history of science. <laughs> she goes, okay, well, we know it's electricity, right? But electricity wasn't invented yet. So where would people get electricity in a time, blah, 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 blah. And she she does all of this mental work out loud really quickly, really intellectually and helpfully. And then is like, boom, you know, bing, bang, boom. It would have been um, lightning. And that would have been the way to access electricity. And also it explains, um, I think the, the phrase hand of God um and I did not look it up, so I apologize. But I think that that phrase explains lightning pretty well and makes sense to me as the the keystone. Yes, Jillian, who is raising her hand. I'm raising my hand like Hermione Granger because this ties in so perfectly with what we just talked about. Because what were the gods that the Greeks believed in? The Greek gods, who was the big guy of the Greek gods, it was Zeus. So it was his hand, his lightning. So even though the Muslim people aren't obviously worshipping Greek gods, they're a monotheistic religion, they have the works of all these people who did have this polytheistic religion and were able to grow on that. So I think that is interesting. I, I think certain phrases like hand of God even if that's not your religion, carry throughout whatever culture. Yes, I agree. And this like rapid fire climax of information um, gets us to this really scary revelation between Rebecca and Micah. And I guess like I knew this somewhere in the back of my mind, but the way Rebecca verbalizes it is super powerful where she says, well, every secret service agent will take a bullet, right? Like everyone has agreed that for the president or their country that they will make the ultimate sacrifice. And, you know, that's what Jack did. And they know that's what Pete will do. And so it's just like, on the one hand, super, super emotional. But on the other hand, it's like, well, we know how he's going to behave and we can use that to go and save him. Yes. And, I mean, I think that's beautiful. And so then we go out. Um, that was a really good commercial break. We talked before about good commercial breaks. Here's another good example. And when we come back for Act 5, um, 
we are at the station and Pete is with the generators and he's holding the clamps in his hands mm. and he's hunched over and he's in so much pain and it's so raw and it's such a good performance by Eddie McClintock and I think here is the place where we insert that clip. So I didn't know if I was going to be able to properly convey the, these, the, these emotions um, in the scene where he says to Micah, you know, go, you know, get out of here. I'm going to take the fall um, and, and um, sacrifice my, my life and myself for um, the greater good. So as an actor, you know, I tried to I tried to apply it to my my sons to my family and and I wanted to express that in the the uh, um, the emotional part of that scene and the scream and the the pain and all and so it was very cathartic you know it was very cathartic to be able to just do like this insane primal scream um at the world, you know, and, and I was proud of myself because I didn't, I didn't edit myself. I didn't like go, ah, you know, like I, 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 I let the world see who I was in that moment, you know, and I, and I was proud of that. If you listen to the interview with Eddie McClintock before, then you have heard this clip before, but I really think it's important to put it in its proper context here too, because this is such a good piece of acting. Yeah. And we don't really do actor spotlights on main characters, but this is a special moment that we want to commemorate for our listeners. Everything he says feels like a monumental effort. Like, Forget keeping your emotions in check. The effort of putting words on top of that, it feels like it's tearing him apart. And he begs Micah to put the clamps on the spine, knowing that it's metal, it's conductive, whatever gets to that thing is going to really hurt him too. And we didn't talk about this earlier, but they tried already to zap the spine off of the ex-husband who wound up dying. Yeah, the uh, Tesla. with their Teslas, but it wasn't enough energy, so he needed a bigger energy source. So we go back to that big generator that was mentioned in the very first scene of the episode, and Pete says something so heartbreaking. Micah, I need you to put these on the spine. I tried to do it myself, but I can't reach, and if I miss, I'll just kill myself, and it'll find someone else. I know he's his first concern is for someone else. So one of the reasons this is so emotional to me is that we talk again a lot about subversion. Pete, a hunky, strong, stereotypically masculine man who has been, you know, in these law enforcement jobs forever, is very, very, you know, broad-shouldered and muscular. And a thing I find really interesting um, that I know from, like, my friends who are super muscular is that it's this amazing strength, but you also lose flexibility in certain ways. And so I guess what's so emotional to me is when he says, I tried, but I can't reach. It's like, 
his strength, his physical stereotypical strength is what's inhibiting him from making that ultimate step of emotional strength in self-sacrifice. Like he wants to put it on his own back, but he's just too manly. He can't do it <laughs> like because he's too broad. I had I, I won't say a different reading because I think that too, but I have an additional reading which breaks my heart because we know he cares so deeply about Micah. They they obviously care so deeply about each other. He knows everything she's gone through. He knew from the moment he met her about Denver. And he he knows that no matter what, this is likely going to kill him. And he's asking for help from his partner and he knows after having already lost a partner, he might be asking her to physically do the act that will end up killing him. And I think that he wants, I think like he he's almost sobbing as he says it, when he says, I tried, I tried to do it myself and I couldn't, which means someone else has to and I'm asking you and I know that's the worst person to ask, but I trust you. Mm-hmm. And it's this heartbreaking moment and you see like, not literally, but you see the emotional heart just fall directly out of Micah's chest as she realizes what's being asked. And she starts crying, not like sobbing, I can't focus my emotions crying, but like a, oh God, this is the worst possible scenario kind of crying. And she just says, I can't do it. She just can't do it. And I think she would have gotten there. I think she would have done what she had to do but thank god rebecca was there and without even talking about it she takes the clamps and she puts them on the spine and she knows also to give micah enough time to say what she needs to say and it's i feel like rebecca was expecting something like i love you or you know whatever she would have said to jack but that's not what the relationship with pete is and micah does the best thing that she could do, which is just be Micah and be bossy. Yes! <laughs> she goes, you will come back. Do you understand? You will. Because she will not tolerate a different solution. And Pete just tells uh, Rebecca to, to do it. And she flips the switch and he lets out the scream. It is difficult to watch in a good way eddie we love you it's so believable that that man is dying it's insane yeah and it's the emotion it's the tears it's everything that we see pete trying to cover up with his day-to-day life with his jokes with his everything with his not talking about his past and everything that makes pete pete is stripped away Mm. and the only thing of pete that's left is that heroic instinct and it's just this beautiful sacrifice and it makes my heart break in half and you can see for a split second after it works the spine sort of hobbles away and there's a moment when Micah looks from the spine to Pete and she's like I don't care she didn't even look at Rebecca it's almost like she forgot Rebecca was there and she's like you know what if it gets out there again fine I'm helping Pete and she immediately starts CPR she starts chest compressions because Pete is dead his heart is stopped he is he's a dead person Rebecca thankfully is there and just beats the crap out of 
the spine because it can't move fast. I think it's important that you use the word that the the spine hobbles away. Like it's clearly very debilitated and couldn't get far or may not, you know, work in the way it used to. Like Pete did basically kill it, but it needs one more good whack. And the catharsis in Rebecca being like, needs one more good whack, no problem, wham. Like, well, no, I mean, I think it's important that it was Rebecca who did that. Not just because Micah needed to save Pete, but because that's the thing that took Jack from her. And she had a little bit of vengeance to take out on it too. And now she at least gets to address the source of her loss, which was this spine artifact thing. And then meanwhile, Micah with Pete, she's doing normal CPR and it's not working and she's freaking out. And then of course, just like she kept herself and Pete calm enough by bossing him around, she ultimately brings him back by being her most Micah to Pete self. Instead of like doing by the book and doing what's needed, she just Wax his chest, which is definitely what it is. What would be needed, like a harder. I was just gonna say that. Yes, but also it's just it's so funny because her instinct is always to just be like, oh come on, and just like hit his shoulder. Like it was like a much stronger act of their typical friendship is what brought him back to life, and that made me very happy. That was my exact thought. Is that (laughs) was it really? (laughs) And then we talk about the best part. Oh, he pops back to life, and the first thing he says. Are you okay? And she cries and says yes, and they laugh. And I feel like that's the moment. Like, I feel like taking a step back, watching this from a TV network perspective, when we know from our interview with Eddie that there was this sort of pull back and forth. Do we go darker, more X-Files territory, or do we lean into a bit more of the comedy and the lightness? I feel like that was the decisive moment in the show where they picked the tone they were going to move, they were going to use moving forward. Because there was nothing better than that smile that Micah gave him when she knew he was okay. That kind of restrained relationship between Scully and Mulder definitely works for them, but it doesn't work for Pete and Micah. And if we had only that level of emotion to resolve the kind of tension that we just resolved between Pete and Micah, it wouldn't be as satisfying. We need those huge pops of emotional brightness to offset how dark the show can get. Yes. And um, I think those huge pops of brightness include our cut back to the warehouse. Yes. Where Pete is just immediately making joke after joke, these puns about being dead. And I expect nothing less from Pete, whose way of coping, um, because what Eddie's interview said that was really illuminating about this is that um, Pete is able to be really serious when he needs to. He's not a non-serious guy. He just uses humor in a very specific way that is similar to Eddie McClintock's own way. And so this is a way that he needs to cope with that experience and... And that is a way that Claudia plays along and Artie does not. And Claudia gets it, I feel, as though she uses humor in a very similar way. But I do want to say that there's a quick sentence that Artie doesn't finish. And he goes, please don't joke about it. You know how I felt when you... And then Claudia cuts him off. I know, but that's really necessary because Artie is expressing 
his affection, which he has not, you know, historically done. And I think everyone, it's not like people are brushing past that thing of Artie's, but I think they also know that for Artie, this is a, he's dipping his toe in the water. They're like, we get it. You don't have to go all the way there just now. We understand. Yes, I agree. That they know what he's going to say. They're not cutting him off to be jerks. They're cutting him off to like relieve him of having to complete the sentence. Yes. And then Micah enters with Rebecca, who holds a briefcase full of shattered Saracen spine. You betcha. (laughs) And she hands it to Artie and says, I just wanted to make sure this isn't a place where it can't get out, basically kind of thing. And... Right when Rebecca returns, Artie is very honored. Um, she wants to bring the spine back. That's where Claudia does her Star Trek Next Generation thing. And I only bring it up because we talked about it before, but I bring it up now because what Rebecca says in the moment is that this place hasn't changed. And then Claudia is the one who rushes over and suggests that it could change or it might change. And to me... Again, I love Claudia doing the Vulcan salute, but more than that, when we go to the context of the moment, it's uh, sort of we're looking around at like an office that clearly belongs to a dusty older man. And then Claudia has come in with her tech savvy attitude and her being this young woman who is like not traditionally educated, but way smarter than everyone. And, you know, not who you would expect to be the hacker, but totally is better at hacking than anyone. And she is going to be the change. And I think that actually Rebecca wants to see that. And I and I agree. And I think that's important for the button of this episode, the end of yeah. the episode, that we'll, we'll get to in a bit. But Claudia is the embodiment of the hope of that change. Because there are a lot of parallels between Micah and Pete and Jack and Rebecca, but we also see that their relationship is subtly different, you know? Yes, and so I think that this, what we know, non-romantic but very emotionally important friendship between Pete and Micah shows is a more modern take on male-female friendship. Yeah, and so... When Rebecca turns her job down, mm-hmm. that already offers her a job back, he goes, he used another set of hands, and she goes, yeah. No. Yeah, using is exactly the word I would use, which again reminds me of Eddie's interview. Yeah. He uses, yup. Then she's about to leave, and Claudia nudges Artie, and it's like, oh yeah, and then they take her back into Jack's room, and he says, Claudia found something when she was looking around, and he hands it to her, and it's an engagement ring that is engraved, that, and it says, Rebecca and Jack together forever and it's got these two stones in it and clearly he was planning to leave the warehouse to be with her and Artie is immediately like high levels of emotions must leave must leave (laughs) he's just like I'll give you a minute and he just leaves and Micah stays and takes Rebecca's arm very gently not like hard and it's just like you know he did choose you after all you were his love not the warehouse basically and Micah's about to go, and Rebecca grabs her a a little slash a lot more forcefully and says, get out of of here while you can, while you still have a life to live. This place will use you up just like the spine. And Micah's a little rattled, but I think more about the longer-term implications of that. I don't think she's fearful 
I think she feels in control, but I think that she feels that's an alarming thing to say and is worried about where that came from. Yes, and and this was my my similar thought, and it's returning to something you mentioned, but it didn't make the final cut. When Micah was with a separated man, and something that was difficult about that was that obviously being legally separated, you're not cheating on your wife, but there is a stumbling block that's going to stop you from getting married again or from really fully seeing that relationship through and from what we understand Micah really loved Sam and might have been going that direction with him and so when she sees that there is the possibility to be together with someone forever and to have a marriage or long-term commitment it's especially hard-hitting to her because she didn't get to get that far in her last relationship directly because of her line of work, even if it wasn't the warehouse. So um, it's the long-term implications, like you said, for her life that are challenging her here. But I also think that Rebecca's words don't hit her with a huge sense of urgency because I think there's a part of her that's like, I don't mind being used up by this. Mm. We all choose to spend our lives in a certain way and devote to certain things in our lives. And I think at this point, Micah is comfortable giving her energies towards this. Mm-hmm. Because like Rebecca said, she had a job where she was trained to take a bullet. It's not that she doesn't value her own life. It's just that she's very carefully weighed what she is willing to put on the line for work that she loves. But it's still ominous. It is ominous, and Rebecca walks away, and the end of the episode just leaves us to watch Micah follow, literally follow Rebecca's footsteps out of the room, and then just kind of fade out, which is a very pensive ending. Yeah, but a good one, and it was... Yeah, like thought-provoking. Yeah, it, it just made us think going forward. To me... It was a different way of making me excited for the next episode. It wasn't like, how is this plot point going to be resolved? Which is oftentimes how, you know, they leave you on a cliffhanger in shows so that you'll come back. But this one was just like, this is making profound statements about long-term goals, you know? It makes me wonder what steps they're taking towards something. What part of a puzzle am I going to need to, like, reveal next? And the investment in long-term arcs for characters um, because you want in a good show to be really driven by that character's dynamic development. And we get that that's happening with Micah and we've seen it happen with Pete a little more quickly, but it's happening with her too. Yeah. And that's all I have about this episode. And we'll see you next week, agents. Bye. (laughs) I do love your bye at the end of every episode, by the way.